in the New Testament. And if you need a Bible uh, to follow along, if you just raise your hand um, and put your um, baseball glove on, uh, you will receive one quickly. Any takers on the Bibles? Hands? No? No Bibles? Galatians chapter 4 tonight. Let's again just turn our hearts to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that this word that we have in front of us will endure for all of eternity. That heaven and earth will pass, but your words will never pass away. That your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And I pray, Father, that we, as your people, that we would come reverently with an understanding of the severity of this word and the glory of it. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be gripped with the treasure that's before us. And I ask, Father, that as you said this word is living, that you would make it alive to us tonight. And that you would open our understanding. I pray that it would move from the arena of theology and doctrine into the arena of our lives, that it would become a part of who we are. We thank you for the privilege of studying it. May we take, Lord, every opportunity to capitalize on this blessing that you've given. Let your spirit prosper your word to us, we ask tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a method of studying the scriptures. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. It is called inductive Bible study or inductive Bible study method. And very basically, inductive Bible study is an approach of of Bible study that basically breaks down into three steps. First, observation. That is to take a, a text of scripture and simply to observe it. What does it say? What is the author seeking to communicate, you know, in, in just the, the very simplicity of the speech that's given. After observation comes the second part, which is interpretation. Not just what does it say, but now, what does it mean? And then after discovering the meaning of the passage, you move to the third part, which is application. Which is, how does this area of scripture and its meaning apply to my life and benefit my walk with God and my Christian life. Many times a preacher or a teacher who is one who leads Bible studies will employ this method of inductive Bible study when preparing a sermon. A text is selected and the very first thing that a preacher will do is is, is just simply lead the congregation in observing what is being said reading the passage, and simply looking at what it says. But then, moving on from there, the preacher will then move into the arena of interpretation or interpreting that text. And then, that's where a preacher will employ illustrations and analogies and you know historical reference and maybe other scriptures that support the theory or the idea that's being presented... And through that stage of interpreting or giving its meaning, that preacher will, will desire to bring the people into a clear understanding of both 
the text itself and what it means. And also in bringing them into the assurance that what the, you, know, you, the preacher, are suggesting to them is in fact what that means. You know, which is equally as important. But then that preacher, and the most important part of that leader or preacher's job, is then the application of that text. To apply the things that are being shared and, 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 and seen to the life so that it is no longer simply an idea that is presented doctrinally, but that it becomes life to the person who is hearing it personally. That they can apply it to them and it can benefit them in their Christian walk, in their relationship with God, and it, and it, and it is made alive, the application of the Scripture. Now, this inductive Bible study method that I just described to you is very much like what Paul the Apostle is employing as he writes this letter to the Galatian churches. He, he has a desire as he writes to them to, first of all, throw down the false teaching that these Judaizers, these so-called Christian Jews, were bringing into the Galatian churches telling them that they needed to be circumcised and convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And so Paul is seeking to throw down that idea and to refute it. And second of all, he's desiring to bring the Galatian Christians into the personal assurance that they are saved, not by their works and their religious affiliation, but that they are saved by grace through faith. And Jesus Christ, because of the blood that he spilled upon the cross when he died for the sins of all of humanity. And to explain to them that they are accepted by God based on that premise alone, having nothing to do with their works. Now in chapters 1 and 2, Paul presented to them the idea or the theme that he was seeking to communicate or to get across to them. That salvation is by grace through faith, apart from the law. Then, in chapter 3, which what we looked at last week, he employed part 1 of his inductive Bible study method, that is, the observation. He, he showed them his text of Old Testament Scripture, pointing them back to Genesis chapter 15, when God met with Abraham, the first Jew. Showing them Genesis chapter 12 when he initially gave promise to him, including the other nations of the earth. Pointing them to Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, as he is simply observing all of what God had done in times past to set them up for how it affects them in their present time. He simply observed those texts in chapter 3. But as we move tonight into chapter 4, we see Paul's second stage of inductive Bible study, which is, very simply, the interpretation. Okay, Paul, you explained to us, you know, the covenant that God made with Abraham. You, you know, proposed the meaning of the words that were given in Genesis 12. You introduced the theory of the law and where it plays into the whole thing. But what does all that mean? Interpret that for us, Paul. 
And so as we get into chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to illustrate and describe and explain the things that he observed, first of all, in chapter 3, in order to clarify his point. He begins by illustrating the relationship between grace, the one covenant by which we are saved, and law. The covenant that cannot save, but that prepares a man or a woman to a savior. And so he illustrates the relationship between grace and law using the concept of an heir and an inheritance. If I could draw your attention to the first seven verses, Paul writes and he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant or a slave, though he be Lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant or a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now remember, the whole reason for Paul writing this letter to this church was to prove to them beyond any shadow of a doubt that their salvation, that is, their righteous standing before Almighty God, was based upon the grace of God, purchased by the blood of Christ, and then appropriated by nothing more than their faith in that blood, in that grace. That they are saved by grace through faith. The Judaizers, these so-called Christian Jews, had perverted the simplicity of that message by adding to it, saying, yes, Jesus and the blood, but you must also be circumcised. You must also watch your diet. You must also sign up at the synagogue. And the list went on as the Judaizers were inflicting this doctrine, this legalism, into the Galatian churches. The joy was diminishing. The temperament of the church was changing. And so Paul, in refuting this idea, asked them, first of all, he just says, well, listen, what is a Jew? A Jew is a man, Abraham who simply believed in the promise of God, and thus he attained a righteous standing. And that that belief that Abraham had made him an inheritor or an heir of the promise of God, the righteousness that comes by faith. And he concluded in chapter 3, our study last week, by telling them that if you are in Christ, that you have, if you have been baptized into Christ, then you are an heir of God of that same promise. You are an inheritor, or one who will inherit all things from the Father, equivalent to the man Abraham. So he begins now by developing this whole concept of an heir in order to help us to understand where the law plays into it. If the law doesn't save me, 
then where does the law fit in this whole equation? Again, verse 1, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a slave, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed unto the father. Now, if you can imagine with me a man of great wealth, someone like, say, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, and, you know, you just happen to be fortunate enough to be born into the Buffett dynasty. And you're going to be an heir of Buffett's billions. Now, you will be treated very special and cared for, you know, with great care because of who you are, because of your name, because you're an heir. But as a child, you do not yet have access to that fortune, but you are essentially being taught, you're being shaped, you're being educated, tutored, and primed, really, for what you will be when you will grow up. You're under tutors and governors. Why? Because when you're a a child, you don't know how to manage the wealth that you will one day inherit. And, And so it's essential for you to be trained, for you to be shaped and fashioned in such a way wherein when the time comes, you understand the value of the fortune that you're inheriting and you also know how to manage it. And Paul says that an heir, as long as he is a child, he's under tutors and governors. He's nothing really more than a slave, even though by name he is an heir of all things. But then he goes on and he brings it into the arena of Christian brothers and sisters. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul is saying that before Christ came, the people of God were under this covenant of the law. Before Christ came, we were under the law, and that the law was a tutor or a governor or a teacher, a schoolmaster, as he said in the last chapter, that was given to prepare the child of God for the coming inheritance. Now, we've already seen In our study of Galatians, in fact, we keep seeing it over and over again in every chapter, in every breath, the very heartbeat of what Paul is communicating. We are seeing that the law shows us, first of all, our need for salvation. That part of the work of the law as a schoolmaster in our lives is to lead us to a point where we understand that we need a savior. That we are in debt, a debt that we can't pay. And that there's a problem because of that. Now, building on this concept of Buffett's billions, you know. uh, Imagine with me for a minute that Warren Buffett gives to his son, who is just coming to the age of understanding, the age of awareness, really knows nothing. And he gives to him a credit card, and he says, son, this is a credit card, and this credit card has no limit. And I'm giving this credit card to you for you to go out and I want you to use this card for whatever it is that you need, whatever it is that you want. Just go on, use this credit card. But understand that one day, son, you're going to have to pay the bill. Whatever it is that you do with this credit card, you're going to have to pay the bill. And so Buffett's son, who lives in opulence and knows nothing but the best of everything, takes that credit card and he begins to go out and spend He goes out and he swipes for this and swipes for that and, you know, carelessly goes about 
through his days, through his weeks, through his months, swiping, 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 and, and the bill begins to climb. The number begins to accrue, and it goes past the hundreds of thousands into the millions. And the one day, Warren Buffett, he comes to his son, and he says, all right, son, this is the time. The chickens have come home to roost. It's time for you to pay off the debt that you have accrued, that you have amassed from that credit card that was given to you by me. And the son says, okay. Um, and he reaches into his wallet and he pulls out that credit card. That's all he knows. Well, uh, okay. I'll, and the father says, no, no, no. Cash. It's time to produce. And so the heir, this child who will inherit all things, all of a sudden he's got a few things to think about. Well, what do I do now? There's a debt here that I can't pay. And so he goes down to McDonald's, and he gets a job, and he sees that first paycheck for $56.74. And all of a sudden, despair begins to flood his heart as he begins to realize the value of the treasure that he has been wasting, literally, He's beginning to learn something about the fortune that is at his disposal. He's being allowed to feel the weight of that debt, and it's bringing him into an understanding of the severity of that debt and also of the value of a dollar, the value of the fortune that he will one day accrue. Now, because he's the son of Warren Buffett, he doesn't feel that weight for very long before Daddy Warbucks comes in, Daddy... Buffett, and and says, okay, son, do you understand? Have you learned anything from this lesson, you know, and, and the whole thing, it goes on? See, he would learn about the concept of excessive spending and what it does, and he would also learn of the value of the fortune itself, that it's more than just numbers on paper and plastic being swiped through a machine, that there's actually something that stands behind it. Now, bringing it into the Christian realm, which is what Paul is doing, If God had just sent his son into the world to just pay the sin debt. Because you see, sin has caused a debt. Every transgression, the Bible tells us, is recorded and will be recompensed. It will be paid for, the Bible declares. And if God had simply just sent his son into the world to pay the sin debt without ever giving the law, to the people that had amassed that debt, without, in a sense, ever handing them the bill and saying, okay, it's time to pay up. This is what you owe. Then man would, first of all, never know the depths of his own depravity and wickedness or understand the price of sin. If it wasn't for the law that God gave, then we would never have a concept. Hey, if there is no law then there is no consciousness or understanding of sin. It is the law that discovers or uncovers the presence or the existence of sin. Without law, there's no sin. And so God gave the law to show to us the debt that we had amassed. But then, what happens is that the law, once it's been laid upon us, it allows us to feel the weight of that sin debt. Because he doesn't just send his son and say, hey, I just want you to know that you owed this and I paid for it. But he says, first of all, before doing that, he hands us the bill. And he says, this is what you owe. You owe for a lifetime of rebellion and wickedness against me. 
You owe for a lifetime of deeds and words and attitudes and actions that have separated you from me. You owe for the very thoughts. Down to the very core of what you are, you are responsible to cover all of those sins. Well, I, I can't pay for those things. I, I, I don't know what to do. And so God says, well, this is the law. This is what it is. Thou shalt not. And so we go to McDonald's. And we begin to work. And we try to change and reform our ways. Well, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm no longer going to live this way. And, and we work as hard as we can. And then that first paycheck comes. $56. Oh God, I'll put the whole thing in the offering box. But God looks and he says, no, no, you don't understand what you owe. Well, I can't pay. Well, God says, well, the penalty for sin is death, not just physical death, but the penalty for your death is eternal separation from me. You will be lost in an eternity of outer darkness where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because my presence is light and in my presence there is no darkness at all. Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same spot at the same time and therefore you are cast out as profane. And all of a sudden, the law has laid upon me the weight of my debt and what I owe. But see, God didn't leave man under the weight of that debt. He allowed us to feel the weight of it, to understand the depravity of our own hearts, to see the debt of sin and the wickedness of our hearts. But verses 4 and 5 goes on to tell us that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, made as one who would feel that same weight of debt that we would feel. He was under the law in order to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, God, by sending his son into the world, he one-ups Warren Buffett. See, because Buffett, he just whips out his checkbook. And he writes in the margin there, pay to the order of Discover, or to MasterCard, or Amex. And then he just simply writes in the amount, and out of the great wealth, the abundance of wealth that he already possesses, he just pays off the bill, and the lesson is learned. His son is now one step closer to being the, the, the qualifying heir of the fortunes that he will one day receive. But God does one better. Because God could have, because he's God, he could have just said, you know what, I just wipe out the debt. You understand now, you know, but because of my grace and my love, boom, I'm just wiping it out. I'm just going to erase it. I'm going to misplace the, 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 the book that recorded all of it. And, and everybody is just forgiven because, no, 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 God goes one better. Because God doesn't just write the check or simply print money like the government. But what he does is he sent his son now, not just to pay the debt, but to work it off. Jesus was made under the law, you see. And he was born of a woman. And he physically paid the debt. He didn't just go forth and write a check, but he lived the life. He fulfilled the demands of the law. He went through everything that we went through. He submitted himself to his parents. He was Lord of all, yet Philippians tells us that he made himself of no reputation. He literally became nothing. 
He lived in obscurity. He placed himself amongst the most obscure and most hated of all races in the world, the Jews. He was born into an impoverished family, having very little growing up. He faced every trial and every temptation that is common or could ever be known to men, and yet he somehow overcame all of them. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet the Bible says it was without sin. But then he was crucified, nailed to a cross. He was tortured, and he was bled. Even though he wasn't the one guilty of the crimes for which he was being punished. Because he wasn't just writing a check from the vastness of his treasure. But he was working off the debt himself that you and I accrued through our depravity. And our sinful living. And by doing it that way, by sending his son made of a woman to redeem them that were under the law. He teaches his sons to be. Those that will be heirs of his wealth, his treasure. He teaches us the second thing about his vast fortune. Not just that we were sinners and that we were in need of a savior. Which is the first thing that the law teaches us. But it also teaches us. The value of the treasure. See, we already understand our need. But without Jesus coming and physically paying it and allowing us to feel the weight of the law, we would never understand the value of the treasure that's there. See, by feeling the weight of the law and experiencing the fear of hell and falling under the weight of sin, but then seeing his son taking our place upon the cross, we understand the value of what that blood cost. We understand the value of the price that was paid. If Jesus had just said, everybody's forgiven, don't worry about it. We would say, oh, good. Whew, that was close. But we would never understand the value of what God did, what he purchased. See, without the law, and this is what Paul is trying to say to them, man would never know his need for salvation, and he would never know the value of the treasury of God's love. Now, to say love is cheap, we use the word love all the time, right? We, I tell my wife a thousand times a day, I love you so much, honey, I love you so much. And then I sit on the couch and watch while she does the dishes. <laughs> I love you, sweetie. Can you put an extra scoop in the coffee for tomorrow? Thanks, love you. See, to say I love you is very cheap. It's so easy to say the word. But to show I love you is something totally different. And for God to work off our debt, that shows us his love. And that's the answer for those people that say, you know, people that think they're smarter than God. And they come up to us and they say, well, didn't God know everything? Yeah. Well, didn't God know that Adam was going to sin? Yeah. Well, then why did God put that tree in the garden in the first place? And they think, <laughs> you know, I got him. Smarter than God, you know. No, 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 listen. Because, yes, God knew that Adam would sin. And, yes, God put that tree in the garden. And, yes, God knew that man would fall. And, yes, God knew that sin would wreak the havoc on humanity that it has wreaked. But if it hadn't, and if God had not given the law to allow his creation to feel the weight of what that sin really was, 
then God never would have had opportunity to send his son into the world to pay off the debt that man accrued, and therefore man would never know the love of God. God knew exactly what he was doing when he put that tree in the garden and by giving man the free will to eat of it. We will forever be marveling at the love of God, understanding it the depths of his love, that we were yet sinners. We were his enemies. We were at the furthest point away from him that we could be. And it was then that God loved us and sent his son, born of a woman, into the world to physically pay off the debt of our sin for us because he loved us. Not because he wanted adherence to a religious system or members in a church or people that would mindlessly speak a creed he wanted us to know his great love that he has for us individually. God's law is that sin must be paid for. And if you can't pay for your sin, then the price is eternal separation from God. The Bible calls it hell. But what Paul is telling us is that Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of the law and thus he redeemed those that would believe in him from the curse of the law. We've been redeemed. And the result, again, in verse 5, he says that we might receive the adoption of sons. That the result of what God did is that now we become heirs of God. We are adopted sons, not like Jesus is a son. We can't claim equality with Christ. We're adopted sons. We can say that we're the same as Abraham, heirs of God. But not only do we have access to God, but it says that because you are sons, it says that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant or a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. Now, we have access to God as adopted sons, but we also have access to the fortune. Now, the interesting thing is that what Paul is telling us here is that the fortune that we have access to, because, you know, when we hear about being an heir of God, you know, the first thing that we think of is hoo hoo hoo. I wonder what God's bank account looks like, you know. I wonder what kind of real estate God's got access to. I mean, we're talking about God, you know, I'm an heir of God. But what Paul is telling us here is that, listen, it's not about the provision. The wealth, the treasuries, the the vast fortune of God has nothing to do with the provision or the possessions that he has. But listen, it's all about his person. He says he's given us the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are adopted and we can experience the life in the presence of God. And that is an eternally greater treasure than anything or any cheap possession that we could receive from him. The person of God and the presence of God so outvalues the possessions of God, the streets of gold. We just finished studying the book of Revelation. It tells us so little about the place. The foundations are made of this. The streets are made of that. Who cares? When we see him, we're going to understand. That's the treasure. That's what it's all about. See, we get so consumed with possessions. Abraham, we read it, Genesis 15 last week. 
God looks at him and he says, Abraham, fear not. I am your shield and I am your exceedingly great reward. You have me. Abraham goes, verse 2, yeah, God, but what are you going to give me? Seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is, no, 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 don't you understand? You have me. We say, yeah, Abraham, you didn't get it. But then we say, Lord, please open the door. Open the door for me. And Jesus says, I am the door. If any man come in by me, he will come in and go out and find pasture. We say, yes, yes, Lord, I know you're the door, but please just show me the way. I don't know the way to go. And he says, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. Yes, Lord, I know, I know, I trust you, I love you, Lord, but it's so dark right now, I just need light for my path. I am the light, Jesus says. And when are we going to realize that the treasure that we have, the thing that we are heir of is not the possessions or the provisions of God, it's the person of God. He's given us the spirit of his son living in our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, the most intimate term that you could use in addressing a father, Daddy. And we have access to God. It's the treasure. Now in light of this, Paul goes on and he asks the question because he takes this truth, he takes this incredible truth and he uses it as a mirror now. And he shines it right back at the Galatian church in verse 8. He says, how be it then, according to this truth and the fact of this standing that you have before God, how be it then, When you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are not gods. That is, before you knew God in the world, before your salvation, when you were just lost, the Bible says that we were alienated from God. You served pagan deities. You did incantations and, you know, invocations and rain dances and, you know, you cut yourself and you did all of these pagan Things to try to somehow bring the blessing of the gods upon yourself. When you knew not God, you did all of those outward things. You dressed, you danced, you sang, you did whatever you could to try to bring the blessing of God on yourself. But now, verse 9, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. Paul says, look, you lived in the world. You understood what it felt like to be a pagan and to be doing things to try to please God. Did it ever work for you then? And he says, now you know God. He says much more than that. You're known by God. God knows your name. He knows the number of hairs upon your head. Not one of them falls to the ground without you, him knowing it. He's, you're the apple of his eye. The number of his thoughts towards you are more than the sand that's on the seashore. He's given you all of his promises, all of his glory, all of his grace. He's revealed himself to you. You know God. I've shared with you the story of when I first got saved. And I don't want to be redundant, but it's that good of a story, you know. And Georgia, you know, she she was a Christian already for two years when I came to Christ. And, and I was studying the Bible with this group of people called the International Church of Christ. And they are, they're a call. I'm not talking about the, you know, Max Lucado brand Church of Christ. I'm talking about the ICC, Kip McKean, the Boston Movement, that whole thing. And they were on my college campus, and I was doing Bible studies with them. 
And I remember just brand new. I was just embracing the things of God. And I was on the phone with her, and she was as meek then as she is now. Just gentle. She was not, she's never been like the, this, you know, outspoken, loud type of person who just states her opinion. And, and that made it all the more powerful when she said it. But I was sharing with her all these things that these people were saying to me. And she just said to me in, in the most gentle and meek and yet, you know, confident way, quiet confidence. She just said, you know, she goes, I know God. And that's not God. And I went, you know God? You know, and all of a sudden I'm scared. Like, I'm, who am I talking to? You know, kind of a thing. But I remember what happened when I heard her say that. Something inside of me said, I want to know God. That's what I want. I don't want a religion. I don't want to say, well, I was brought up Catholic. Now I'm a born-againer. That's not what I wanted. That's what I'm, that's what it is. She just put into words the very thing that I'm looking for in my pursuit of God. I want to know him. That's what Paul said to the Philippians. He said, look, I had every shred of religion you could ever have. And he said, it profited me nothing. He said, but I've suffered the loss of all things and I count it as rubbish. Why? That I might know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I might be made conformable into the image of his death. And if I might attain unto that for which I've been called, Paul said, that's what I want. I press toward the mark of the high calling of God. I want to know him. That's what I want. And Paul looks at these Philippian believers and he says, listen, you know God. And you're known of God. He knows you. That's the more amazing thing. See, it's one thing to know Barack Obama, if you'd want to. But if he knows you, that's worth more. Maybe. But he's saying, you know God, and more than that, God knows you. How is it then that you turn again to the weak and the beggarly elements whereunto you desire to be in bondage? You observe days. Why are you doing that? Why are you saying, oh, we've got to, we've got to, uh, the Sabbath day, or, you know, the feast day, or, you know, the whatever day, the uh, oblation, you know, and all these things. And Paul's like, look, those are a shadow of things to come, the Bible says. They're types, they're shadows, they're pictures, they're pointing you to Christ. Why is it that you're turning back to the thing that's pointing you to Christ? You have Christ. Months. Advent. Lent. You know, these Seasons. Years, jubilee, you know, and all of, all, all of these things. He's like, listen, all of those things were signs. You have the substance. And then he says something to them that's so frightful in verse 11. He says, the fact that you are looking at the signs and those other things rather than the substance, the person of Christ, he says, it makes me believe, verse 11, he says, I am afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. He gets brutally honest with them and he says to him point blank, he says, your legalism and the state of your relationship to God based on your performance and your do's and don'ts and your duties and service, Paul says, it makes me think, I'm not even sure if you're saved, Paul says. That's a radical statement. I'm afraid for you, he says, lest I've bestowed labor upon you in vain. Brethren, I beseech you. Be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. 
You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. Now, listen to Paul for a minute because he breaks from his sermon. You know, if you can picture, excuse me, Paul preaching to these people, pouring his heart out to them. He breaks from the sermon and he almost just gets, he just starts shaking them almost. He says, my temptation which was in my flesh, you despise not nor rejected, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. And some suggest that, you know, Paul somewhere along his journey picked up this, you know, eye thing, you know, and and that he couldn't see very well. And that that he's referencing that here to them. He says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They, that is the Judaizers, they zealously affect you. What they're saying is working. The perversion of their doctrine, the poise of their presentation, it's working, it's doing something, it's affecting you. But not well, it's not for the better. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Paul is saying, when I was among you, you know what it was like. You received me as as though I were Jesus Christ. In my body, there was affliction, there was weakness, there was, you know, smallness, humility. That's who I was. And you could taste the love of Christ that was pouring out of my life in my endeavor to just reach you with the grace of God. On the other hand, he says, these Judaizers that are, that their, their ministry is working among you, they would exclude you. As soon as you were to turn your back on what they say, they would kick you to the curb. Paul is saying, you judge for yourself. But it is good, verse 18, to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, he says, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Now, those are powerful words coming from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. To look at this group of Christians. Now, isn't it amazing to consider the thing that would cause Paul to say, I don't think you're saved? See, because I would think that it would be if a church was giving themselves to sin excessively. I would think that this verse doesn't belong in Galatians. This verse belongs in Corinthians. The Corinthians were, they were messed up. I mean, there was fornication in the church. People were getting drunk at the, at the potluck, you know, the love feast. I mean, you go through, and Corinthians was nothing but a look. You guys are screwed up. You're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this. And you would think that Paul would say to them, I stand in doubt of you. But he doesn't. To them, he just basically says, yep, you're sinners, you qualify. But to these Galatians that were trusting in themselves and that had basically turned their backs upon the cross of Christ and had placed their power and their effort or their you know, emphasis upon their effort and their works, to them he says, I'm not sure if you're even saved. Do you understand the severity of legalism? Do you understand the danger involved in it? Can you hear the heartbeat of Christ in Matthew chapter 23 when he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees? Those whose lives were so polished on the outside. 
Everything about their religion looked so good. They did everything right. And yet the God who could see right through the shell and the paint on the outside and see into the depravity of the heart, and he said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. It's nothing but paint. You cleanse the outside of the cup, but inwardly you're, you're disgusting, you're depraved. You strain at a gnat in your piety. Oh, oh no, I swallowed a gnat. I'm not supposed to eat blood. I'm a Jew. Ah, and you make yourself throw up. But when nobody's looking, you go in the back room and you eat a camel. You'll sit down to a meal and you'll eat an unclean beast and you'll do things that are unclean when no one's looking because, well, what I do in public, that's one thing, but who cares what's going on behind closed doors? God's not so concerned with that. And it was to them that Jesus had words of condemnation, words of woe. He said, because you think you are, you can see. He said, you're blind. He said, your dad is the devil. Because religion can't save anybody. God's not concerned with your duties. He's not concerned with the outwardness of your religion. He doesn't care about how many Bible studies you've attended consecutively. He doesn't care how long it's been since you uttered a curse word. He's not concerned about the. I'm not saying he's not concerned about those things. What I'm saying is, what God wants to know is, do you have Christ? Have you come to the point where the weight of the law has crushed you under its burden and you have cried out to God for mercy and accepted his son and the sacrifice that he has offered? Because that's the only thing that matters. And for anyone who places the works upon themselves to save themselves, Paul would say to you as he does to the Galatians, I stand in doubt of you. I'm just not sure. Tell me, verse 21, and he gives them now this final illustration to support his interpretation of these two covenants. He says, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? You that want to be saved by your performance, that want to boast, yeah, I've been circumcised, I'm in, I got my papers. You that boast of the law, don't you hear He says what the law says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondmaid. And the other by a free woman. Now you know the story. Abraham was 86 years old. Sarah hadn't yet conceived. She was 10 years younger. She was 76 years old. God had promised that he was going to have a son. And so Sarah comes to Abram and she says, Hey Abram, you know, this is my... Well, you know Hagar. She's been with us for some time now. And why don't you take her and, and, and just lie with her? And the child that is born from Hagar, that will be our son. And, and maybe that's what God wants. Maybe that's what God is intending to do. And, and it says that Abraham hearkened unto the voice of his wife. You know, hey, yeah, maybe we need to help God out in this thing. Because the time is passing. We're not getting any younger. Romans chapter 4 tells us quite clearly that his body was now dead, that he was past that time when he could, you know, give seed and, 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 and that Sarah could conceive. So, yeah, let's help God out. Okay, God helps those that help themselves. Let's, let's do this, you know. I think that's written somewhere, isn't it? I searched for it and can't find it, but, you know, it just makes sense, right? And so Ishmael is born. 13, 14 years, Ishmael grows up, Abraham thinking that he has helped God to fulfill his promise that he has made. 
And at the ripe old age of 99, God comes to Abraham and speaks to him. And he says, hey, Abraham, at this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to conceive and have a son. And I will establish my covenant with him. Abraham, he says, let Ishmael live before you. And God says, oh, Ishmael will live. And he will be a perpetual thorn in the side of your people. By the way, I hope you're watching the news because that thorn is getting real close (laughs) to the side of God's people again. But Ishmael and Isaac, verse 23 tells us, but he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born after the flesh. It was Abraham's idea. It was Abraham's help. It was Abraham's participation. It was Abraham's ingenuity. Abraham helping God to fulfill his promise. And God says it was of the flesh. It's interesting that when you read Genesis chapter 23, that chapter where God tells Abram to offer up his son Isaac, he says the words, he says, take now your son your only son. God didn't even recognize the existence of Ishmael as a son of Abraham when he was dealing with him according to the promise. It says that the one that was of the bondwoman was after the flesh, but he that was of the free woman, speaking of Isaac, was the result of promise. Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 90. And there was no physical way that those two could conceive a child except it be by the miraculous provisions of God in response to his promise that he gave to Abraham. And God did what Abraham couldn't do. He fulfilled a promise for Abraham and it had absolutely nothing to do with Abraham at all. It was completely the work of God's promise. Paul says there was two, one was of the flesh, the other one was promise. And then in verse 24, he says, which things are an allegory? That there's a lesson here. That it isn't just something that happened and then it was an accident. But there was a lesson, there was something that God was seeking to communicate to future generations, to us even today. He said, for these, these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar, or Ishmael. Hagar was the handmaid who birthed Ishmael. And essentially, he's saying that this covenant of the law was pictured in this man Ishmael. And what was it? It was the flesh. What is the law? The law relates to us. How are we going to get ourselves into heaven? I'm just going to make sure that my good outweighs my bad. I'm going to adhere to the commands and the wills, the things that God wants me to do. I'm going to work my way into heaven, into salvation. It's the flesh, it's the law, and it brings us into bondage because we find that we can't keep the law. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem which is above, and that's Isaac in the allegory, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, speaking of Sarah. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate, 
hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, verse 28, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Now Isaac represents the promise that God gave, having nothing to do with Abraham or performance of man, and it speaks of God's ability to produce by himself the thing that he requires in spite of man's frailty and on behalf of and for man. Isaac, I mean Ishmael, was the result of Abram's flesh. Himself seeking to produce the thing that God required and God wanted. And working it out through his ideas, his way. Isaac, God's response, having nothing to do with man. And he concludes by telling us that we in Christ are the children of promise. That we're not under the law and that we can't save ourselves by our own efforts. But, verse 29, as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And he's given a jab to the Judaizers there. Those that are seeking to be saved by law, those that are seeking to work their way into heaven's salvation, they're going to persecute you who are simply trusting God by promise. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? And this is the conclusion of the matter. He says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. That's what God told Abraham to do. Just send her away. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, that is the law, but we are children of the free. That our relationship with God is by promise. By analogy, What Paul is saying that the two things, the law and the promise, salvation by our efforts, salvation by his gift, his grace, that the two things are mutually exclusive and that they cannot coexist at the same time. Even as Ishmael was not recognized by God, even as a son of Abraham, And yet God established his covenant through Isaac, the covenant of promise. He's saying, cast out the bondwoman. The two things do not exist at the same time. Your salvation, my salvation, is not a combination of grace and law. Well, grace gets me in, but law keeps me in check. And I better have both of those things in my pocket. Yeah, I believe, but I'm also going to hold on to my Sabbaths and my, you know, my rosary or whatever it is that I'm trusting in to try to work my way. And listen, it doesn't work that way. You are either saved by grace through faith in what Jesus accomplished upon the cross or you rely upon your own efforts and your own good works to outweigh your bad in some cosmic curve that doesn't exist in hopes that God will somehow let you in and it will not happen. Cast out the bondwoman. Throw away your legalism. Well, next week we'll talk about the application of these things. Paul's gone in great lengths now to describe for us the two covenants, the difference between them and what it means. And next week, as we get into chapters 5 and 6, we will see the application of how these things flesh out. Okay, in light of all of this, how does it affect my life? When I leave this Bible study of Galatians, what's it going to look like? Because, you know, does that mean I'm not under the law? Am I just to go sin like crazy and it doesn't matter anymore? Paul's going to explain it all for us as we get into chapter 5. But my prayer for you as we close is that you would be so free in Jesus Christ. 
that you would be a person who has felt the weight of the law laid upon your shoulders. That you are a person who understands that you cannot pay for your own sin. You cannot be good enough to get yourself into heaven. And maybe there's some of you, even here tonight, that God is handing you the bill right now and saying, hey, listen, you owe me a lot. It's time to start paying it back. And the terror of God grips your soul as you realize, but listen, there's good news. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus Christ has worked off your debt personally. My prayer for you tonight is that you would both recognize your need and that you would be aware of the value of what that blood cost and what your debt required. And that your appreciation would turn upwards as you realize that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would simply believe in what he's done, if you would throw your life upon him, and trust Him for your salvation that you would be saved. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank You so much for just this truth, this eternal truth, this vast treasury of truth that's set before us. I also pray, Lord, for those of us here tonight that have been saved for some time, and yet somehow we've forgotten. We've gotten so wrapped up in everyday life or in church service or just in the Christian thing that our awareness, our understanding of the blood and of the price of it has somehow diminished in our minds. I pray that you would give us a fresh vision tonight of your Son. Lord, that as we sometimes are tempted in our flesh to complain about the circumstances we're in or the situations surrounding our lives, that we would instead consider Him who humbled Himself, who being in the form of God, took on the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man. And he was obedient to you even to the point of death, the death of the cross. And that in that place of surrender and obedience, you highly exalted him. And I just pray for any that are here tonight that have lost the joy of their salvation, that have turned to themselves, that tonight they would look on Him who was pierced for them. And then that joy of life would rush again into their souls. Give us, Lord, a fresh vision of Your value. Help us to treasure the presence of God. Give us the drive and the ambition to want to know You. 
pray that you would meet with us, Lord. Even as we sing this last song, meet with us, Lord. Thank you for this time. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.